touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we start a two-part series about a very important company in technology, but it's one that I, I would say the average person doesn't really know a lot about. Right, sure. I mean, you know, and it's only important if you've ever used a computer or right, a or, car or, or a mobile phone. Right. Or, yeah, it's you know, only if you've ever used any electronics ever is this company actually important. So if you're the Luddite who hasn't, first of all, how are you getting this podcast? And second of all, um, okay. But uh, yeah, we're talking about Fairchild Semiconductor. And uh, you may have heard of this company. It actually, it, like I said, it's, it's very important in the development of technology as we have have it today. I mean, it's the, the the work that they did laid the foundation for what makes the technology we use today possible. One of their inventions in in what was it, 1958 or so, is the basic technology that we still use. Today. Right. It's what allowed miniaturization. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. some of the the. Earlier work had already been done before Fairchild became a thing, but or Fairchild Semiconductor, I should say. But let's let's start at the beginning. So first of all, I guess we should yeah, talk so, a little so, bit. So about, what what is a semiconductor? That's a good question to ask because we're going to be talking about them a lot. So a semiconductor is kind of, I mean, if you think of the word, it kind of makes sense. A semiconductor is some sort of material that, under certain circumstances, acts as a conductor, as in it conducts electricity. And in others, it does not. Yeah, it acts more like an insulator. It does not conduct electricity. Now, in the case of electronics, we're usually talking about something that has been engineered so that certain parts of it conduct electricity effectively, other parts insulate, again, allow for this thing like transistors. Transistors are essentially electron gates. So that's, you, that's where you get that, that on-off switch, that one-zero sort yeah, of Yeah, exactly, exactly. This is what allows us to control the flow of electrons through a circuit so that we can have various outcomes. So, for example, with a microprocessor, where you're using something in a in a computer or a mobile handset, this is what allows that those logical functions to take place. And we use things called logic gates. Logic gates are essentially rules that say when you get this kind of input, you will create this, this kind thing. of output. Yeah. Right. So let's say here's a really simple example showing the one zero concept. Let's say you have two light switches. All right. And you have one light bulb. And if you flip a light switch to the up position, that's technically uh, the number one, let's say. So let's say you flip both light switches up to the number one position and the light bulb comes on. So that would be a one, one, one. Everything is on. If you switch both light switches to the off position, that would be zero. The light bulb goes off. That's zero, zero, zero. Now let's say you switch the first light switch on, second light switch off, and the light bulb comes on. That's one, zero, one. You do first light switch down, second light switch up, that's zero, one, and then the light bulb comes on, that's another one. So that would be an example of a gate. And you could have all different kinds of combinations with that particular gate. It could be that when both switches are down, the light's on, but in any other combination, it's off. That's all different types of logic gates. So we create these logic gates to create the, the different scenarios necessary to process data. And this data is just in the form of electrons. Now, what I explained to you might sound like sorcery, but no, seriously, this is the basis of electronics and computers. And uh, 
the fact that we are able to to miniaturize these elements to teeny, teeny, tiny amounts, we're talking the nanoscale these days, is what allows us to have the computers and mobile devices that we use today. Otherwise, we would still be depending upon massive, massive pieces of electronic equipment. Right, right. You're, you you would be tethered to a room rather than a cell phone. Yeah, or, or a building. Send a yeah. tweet, sure. Yeah, because we're talking, back in those days, you know, we're just talking circuits. And circuits are just pathways for electricity. That's really what a basic circuit is. Now, in the old days, you made these pathways out of physical wires and other components that were huge, like vacuum tubes. I mean, these are big, big things. It was only after the transistor was invented that we started to see the possibility of moving away from that. And even those earliest transistors weren't integrated circuits. Oh, they were, right. They were pretty bulky. Um, yeah. they, they were frequently called uh, Mesa transistors because they slightly resembled uh, Mesa settlements in the desert. Um, yes. Because uh, they were big and blocky and weird looking. And mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The very first one is practically enormous. I mean, it, it, you can see pictures of it in... Things like the Computer History Museum, they have a replica. Uh, but anyway, one of the three inventors, one of the three people we credit with inventing the the transistor, uh, was William Bradford Shockley. Uh, and he and John Bardeen and Walter H. Bretain. We were working at uh, Bell Telephone. Yeah, Bell Telephone Labs. So uh, they were over at Bell Labs, and they created that first semiconductor back in 1947. Now, in 1954, Shockley left Bell Labs to found his own semiconductor factory called Shockley Semiconductors. And he hired up all these smart engineers and scientists. He was, he said, these are the people that are going to really push this as an industry. I see the potential here. We need to really grab the best and brightest and and he he knew a lot about that at the time. In 1956, he won the Nobel Prize in physics. Yeah. Yeah. No, he, he was one of the I, I believe he and a couple of others were credited with it. But yes, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in physics for his work in creating transistors. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, smart guy. Um, however, in 1956, about well, eight of the, the 12 brilliant guys that he hired said, you know, we're not really a fan of. Your practices or management style or... You're kind of a jerk. Your face. Yeah. Okay, so in the interest of full disclosure, Shockley, if you ever look him up, held some incredibly controversial and really not nice views. I've I've heard him compared to a um, slightly less polite Howard Hughes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're wondering what we're talking about, look up... William Bradford Shockley. It's not really germane to this discussion, so we're not going to cover it. Right, right. Maybe we'll do an episode about him some other time. But, but at so, any rate, so so it was important that he hired these twelve people, um, and and was concentrating them on trying to figure out ways of using um, uh, germanium and silicon. Right. Yes, because those were the the materials that seemed to be the most promising for semiconductors. Right. And uh, these eight eight of the twelve decided to leave, and of course, uh, Shockley being the uh, understated fellow that he is, labeled them the traitorous eight. Uh, yes, which I love. They, you broke my heart, Fredo. So, uh, 1957, these eight engineers, and, uh, you're gonna recognize at least one of these names, guys. I'm pretty sure. I, I'll leave the one that you'll recognize, uh, most likely last. There's, uh, C. Sheldon Roberts, Eugene Kleiner, Robert N. Noyce, I'm sure some of you recognize that name, Victor H. Grinch, Julius Blank, Gene A. Herney, and J.T. Last. The last one is Gordon E. Moore. 
A.K.A. that guy who came up with Moore's Law. Yeah, this is the guy who created uh, Moore's Law, which was, of course, an observation. He had observed that there was this tendency for manufacturing companies to cram twice as many components onto a square inch silicon chip um, every year or so. Now, we've since reinterpreted that to mean that every two years or so, computers get twice as powerful as they used to be. Anyway... This he was one of the founding members. These guys they they decided to leave and they decided they wanted to find found their own company, and they approached a company called Fairchild Camera and Instrument Corporation, which was uh, located located out of New York. And they were looking to get into superconductors at the time, semiconductors at the time. Right, exactly. Superconductors are a different thing. Right, right. But semiconductors, yes. Uh, by the way, people, we're recording this in a very warm room. So there's going to be some verbal stumbles on on the part of both of us. And maybe even Tyler, who is sitting in for Noel today. Hi, Tyler. Hi, Tyler. He's, Tyler, he's Tyler's waving. waving, which is great for radio. So um, at any rate, they they went to Fairchild Camera and Instrument Corporation and said, Hey, guys, I hear that you are looking at getting into the semiconductor business. We are very knowledgeable about semiconductors. How about we get together and work on this? And uh, Fairchild said, uh, maybe. And so they kind of drew up an agreement. And in that agreement, each of the engineers put $500 of their own money toward this as a stake in the venture. And then uh, Fairchild threw in another uh, one and a half million. <laughs> so, you know, equal equal parts all around, right? Sure, yeah. But yeah, it started at... Uh, also, they Fairchild had the option to outright buy the company within eight years of its starting. And yeah, so, that was one of the conditions of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah you got to read the fine print, guys. No, So in October of 1957, Fairchild Semiconductor becomes a real thing. And it was just the third company that existed in Silicon Valley. Um, of course, it wasn't called Silicon Valley at the time. It was called Santa Clara Valley to anyone who, you know, happened to live there. Yeah, if you're wondering what the first one was, that's Hewlett Packard. That's technically the first company in Silicon Valley. They And, you know, unlike the others... Uh, they didn't start, Fairchild didn't start in a garage. One of the few things to set it apart from every other company that ever started in Silicon Valley. They bucked the trend. Of course, at that point, it's not a trend, I guess. Right. Unless you're the Braves, in which case three games in a row is a winning streak. All right. So I'm sure that was a harsh diss for per- someone who knows something about baseball. Well, they've got the highest, they've got the best uh, record in baseball right now. So I, I'm, it's not really a diss. Okay. So moving on. Uh, semiconductors. What happens with making one? How are they made? So th- this is a little different from the way they were doing it in the earliest days at Fairchild. But in general, what you have to start with is pure silicon. It's very important that it's as pure as possible. You wanted to get it c- as close to 100% pure as you possibly can because uh, y- you are going to be messing with this stuff in the f- in the future. But y- you know, it's really And the ways precise. in which you mess with it are, are the ways in which it works. Exactly, so, yeah. yeah. So it- when you start with a good pure base, that... Yeah, that, that makes it possible. Otherwise, your chips are not going to work. You're, you're going to end up with a huge waste of, of resources. So, so, so you grow these pure silicon crystals into, um, kind of, kind of cylinders. Yeah, yeah. The way it works is you got this big old vat of, of liquid, uh, silicon, and then you dip the pure crystal in. It makes the rest of the liquid crystallize around, around it, it into one crystal. It's like one solid crystal. Which is shape. a really fascinating process, by the way. Yeah. And then you it's really you, fun to watch. You draw it out and you've got this big old cylindrical ingot is what they call them. And then you use a, a, a saw, usually controlled these days by a robot, but it's a saw that cuts them the the cylinder into wafers or waffers, if you 
prefer, you know, Monty Python approach. So that's wafer thin, and you cut uh, a series of wafers through this ingot. Uh, each wafer is about 0.75 millimeters thick and just under 12 inches in diameter, so about 300 millimeters. And you cut one, once you've cut that, then you're ready to start the uh, diffusion and etching process. So let's talk about what's going. Well, actually, first you have to polish it. I should say, because you want it to be to be as, really smooth yeah, to start out with. Yeah, you want it to be as uniform as possible. Because you're going to be, again, making very tiny changes to it, particularly these days. Now, again, back in the Fairchild days, you're talking about elements that were on the, the micro scale. Now we're on the nano scale. But we'll, we'll talk more about why that's important in, a, in a, uh, the next episode. So essentially what you're doing is you're using uh, chemicals uh, to give certain properties to the semiconductor and then cut away parts that you don't want. So there are two different types of semiconductor material. There's N-type and there's P-type, which essentially stands for negative and positive. The negative types have extra electrons that they can give up. The positive types have holes, electron holes, that can accept electrons. This is what allows electricity to flow through semiconductor material. So you're actually introducing small amounts of impurities. It's called doping. And in this case, it's not a bad thing. So you're not going to get thrown out of the Olympics for it. And you probably won't go into the Olympics either. But anyway, so you're doing this doping process. And it's uh, imagine that you, you add in a layer of this special stuff that, that dopes your wafer, mm-hmm. uh, uh, like N-type. We'll just say N-type. And then you coat certain parts of the wafer with a chemical that's going to protect that layer. Then you use a different chemical to etch away anything that was not coated. So only the coated stuff remains whole. Creating a certain pattern on the chip. Right. And or then, the wafer surface, rather. Exactly. Then you do another coating. Maybe now it's a P coating. And uh, again, you coat it again with... Don't. You're like 12. It's like Chris Paulette. She's just giggling and looking at me. Yes, it's a P coating. The letter P. And then you coat that with an oxide again. You use the chemicals to etch away all the non-relevant parts. You do this many, many, many times in order for you to make a final uh, semiconductor chip of whatever it is that you were building. And keep in mind, this could be lots of different stuff. Semiconductor material is used in more than just microprocessors. It's used in a lot of other basic pieces of electronics. But uh, we mostly think of it as microprocessors because that's one of those things that I think everyone has some familiarity with. Right, sure. So, uh, yeah, the process is done several times in order to get exactly what it is you want. And then uh, once that's done, then it can go into the next level of processing, which usually involves putting in some connectors so that it can connect to whatever it is that to you're whatever going to be using. Else here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you finish it off with whatever covers need to be placed on it. Then it gets packaged and sent off to wherever it needs to go. So that's your basic uh, step from beginning to end. And so uh, one thing that the Fairchild folks had come up with was this idea of double diffusion. Now, that is the process I was talking about of introducing those impurities, that doping process. And the way that they were doing it was cutting down on the processing time that they would need to do. Back in the early days, if you wanted to make a transistor, you essentially had to do it piece by piece, you would get a wafer and you would make one transistor 
and you'd, you know, you'd end up having that all cut out and, and done. Then you would go back to the wafer and make the next one. They found a way where they could process this and make several transistors out of an entire wafer all at once. So it really cut down on the amount of time it took to produce transistors, which in turn brought the price down. This is what Gordon Moore was talking about when he made that observation. He said, we're making improvements in manufacturing, which is making it possible for us to reduce the price of components, which is making it possible to build bigger components. So really, when he made that observation, it wasn't anything necessarily about computer power or, or electronics power. It was more about the economics. It was just economics. about the actual, right, right? Yeah. The actual physical pieces and yeah, it was just, the price point. Ultimately, yeah, it all comes down to money, which is, uh, you know, cheerful. Hey, that being said... Let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, so we're back. Let's talk about the actual history of Fairchild. So it was founded in 1957. Uh, six months later, it was profitable. That's pretty impressive. I mean, brand new company, unproven, other than the fact that they knew they had some of the smartest guys in the industry. Sure, sure. Still. And and also, I mean, they, they made their first sale was to IBM um, for an order of 100 transistors priced at 150 bucks a pop. Right. And in 1958, that was approximately five million dollars. <laughs> It was, it was, no, it was a lot. It was a bunch. That. Yeah, it was, it was a bunch. It was a bunch of dollars. 150 bucks for a hundred transistors. Well, $150 per transistor for a hundred transistors all to IBM. That's a good first client to have. Yeah, sure. Not too bad. Um, my, my favorite part about the story is that when they had to ship them, um, Jay Last just ran out to a local supermarket and uh-huh. picked up a used Brillo carton. Br- Brillo being that brand of, um, Scrubby sponges. Right, right, right. Yeah, they're sponges that have some steel wool and soap in them. Yeah, yeah. And and he just picked up a used carton and they were just like, oh, this is good for transistors and plopped them in and <laughs> sent them off. Yeah. Keeping in mind that, you know, these days we have very specific packaging for all this kind Crazy of stuff. Crazy Faraday cages built in right, and all sorts yeah. of, right, Yeah, right. and like plastic that you will never, ever open without the use of some sort of chainsaw. Yeah. I like this, though. I, it adds a little, a little kind of dash of whimsy to the story. Right. Um, and that same year, uh, one of the engineers, Robert Noyce, uh, developed the monolithic integrated circuit. Now, this is the invention you were talking about earlier in the show, Lauren, the one that truly defines the way we use computers and electronics, what, what makes them what they are, because it's what allowed an entire circuit to be put upon a single uh, chip of, of silicon. Before, it was that you would create different components and then wire them all together, which meant that you were limited by... By size. Size, yeah. mm -hmm. You wouldn't be able to get too small. But this suddenly created the possibility of miniaturization on a level that they had never had before. However, um, it did mean that uh, there weren't that many customers who needed this yet. Because there just wasn't a market there. Right. So it was a, it was a huge development and it was phenomenal and really important in computers and electronics. But at the time, everyone's like, well, that's cool, but uh, what does it do? I don't, why do we use that? Yeah, exactly. But we'll, we'll (laughs) understand. There's an interesting first really good application for it coming up. So they, he was not the only person to be, to work on the integrated circuit and come up with this. There was a, a separate group. That came up with it independently. Uh, right, uh, led by Jack Kilby over at Texas Instruments, and um, and the the story of that one goes that that Jack was had only been with Texas Instruments for a couple of months and was left alone, therefore, at the offices during a vacation time when everyone else had off. Right, and just sitting around came up with this with, with a very similar idea for how to um how to 
add layers to a wafer chip right. before before starting to etch out the chemical process. And I think the chemical process is what Noyce really came up with. Um, but uh, but 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 yeah. Anyway, you know, they would they both uh, applied for patents, both companies, and right. Fairchild would wind up winning that one really hard. Partially because because Noyce had sort of expanded upon the same concept and, uh, and right. m- filed a much more detailed patent. Right. But- so if you've listened to our episodes on Texas Instruments, you've probably heard our story there where we talked about the integrated circuit. It's interesting and not unusual to see two different people in two different companies not necessarily having any connection with one another independently come up with the same thing. We've seen this happen again and again, and sometimes it just kind of indicates that the time was right. Right. Like like enough of the groundwork had been laid that someone was going to come up with it, and when you've got that many brilliant people working on it, surely it shouldn't come as a surprise that more than one person realized how it was going to work. In this case, we give the credit largely to to Noyce, or at least he got the patent for it. Um, in 1959, Gene Herney created the first planar transistor. Now, it's gonna it's kind of complicated to talk about what exactly the planar transistor is, but in general, the earlier transistors had exposed junctions, which made them less efficient when they were processing uh, electricity, when they were doing whatever it was they were supposed to be doing in that particular transistor. Uh, There was a lot of leakage, which meant that not all the electrons were going where you wanted them to go, and you had a lot of wasted power in that case. The planar uh, approach meant that, and planar is P-L-A-N-A-R. Which was, uh, at least for a long time, I'm not sure if it still is, was... uh proprietary word owned by Fairchild. Interesting. Um, that uh that they made a good couple million bucks on licensing for. Wow, I did not know that. I didn't see that in my research. Well, at any rate, they they according to what I read, the reason the main reason they called it that was because it ended up having these uh there were these protective layers that were on top of these transistors and the conventional wisdom at the time was that you needed to remove those at the end of processing in order for this transistor to work. There were a lot of engineers who were of the opinion that if you were to leave those layers in place, it wouldn't it, either the transistor wouldn't work properly, it would be less efficient, or it just would uh, it just was a wasteful idea. That was something that Herney said. No, that's let's that's, just leave let's them in Let's try there. this mm-hmm. and created a, a transistor using this approach where those layers were left in place, and it actually created a much more efficient transistor and. Uh, so the reason I've seen of why it was called planar is because the transistor itself was flat because those layers had not been removed. There are other uh, exam- uh, descriptions that say that the reason why it's called that is because all the elements are within the same plane of each other. Either Your way. knowledge may vary. You know, <laughs> the, the wacky thing about history is that uh, different people define it in different ways and, and we just have to go with whatever one we like most. <laughs> so, uh then we that takes us up to 1961, and that's when Fairchild Semiconductor got that patent on the monolithic integrated circuit. When I hear monolithic integrated circuit, I just imagine it must have been enormous. That's a monolithic like, integrated. Yes, like, the, like the thing out of 2001. Right. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. That's mm-hmm. the second biggest integrated circuit I've ever seen. Anyway, the first integrated circuit that was commercially available from Fairchild was the Resistor Transistor Logic product, also known as RTL. So uh, we're, you're going to hear us talk about a lot of these terms. We're not going to go into a lot of detail because every single one of these gets really, really technical. 
But in, at any rate, this is what was what leading to true miniaturization, allowing these computers and electronics to come in those smaller form factors. Now, those first integrated circuits were $120 per chip. It's pretty expensive. And again, there weren't that many customers out there that had need for it, except for one big one. So 1961, what industry really had to conserve on how much space their stuff took up? Could that be the space industry? It could be. You know, it's so ironic that there's nothing out there but space. And yet they needed to conserve space. Can you guys hear me shaking my head at him? <laughs> so, yeah, the obviously when you're designing a space craft, some sort of space capsule, every single tiny amount every, of space Every, every is ounce and every right. Yeah, you got to have enough room for, if it's a manned spacecraft, you have to have enough room for the astronauts to move around and do whatever it is they need to do. And so conserving that was of the highest level of importance. So... The space industry, NASA, really relied heavily on Fairchild Semiconductor in those early days. In fact, uh, some of the uh, some of the components that Fairchild would make would be used in the Apollo program for the guidance systems. Very important stuff. Uh, in 1962, Fairchild opened up a production facility in Maine, South Portland, specifically. Yep, South Portland. That would become important. That's uh, spoiler alert. This will come in in play in the second part of our series. That's where the headquarters are now. Right. South Portland, Maine. But that, that facility was opened in 62. And uh, the transistors produced there were intended mostly for radios and oscilloscopes and a few other uh, instruments, you know, electronic instruments. In 63, they produced the resistor transistor logic dual gate device, uh, the RTL dual gate device, the first to incorporate buried layer isolation technology, which are the planar resistors. This was the first time they had actually incorporated that Approach that Noyce had had real and Herney had pioneered, and now this was actually going into a product. product, Yeah, so they were you know you you could think of those earlier discoveries. They obviously took a couple of years to get worked into the manufacturing process. Right, right, and those those went up with uh, with Apollo, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, they sure did. So these are the ones that the Apollo program would rely on heavily uh, for multiple systems, mainly guidance. In '64, they created the NPN planar power transistor. Uh, that was kind of like, you can imagine it like a sandwich, all right? So the, the top piece of bread on your sandwich is really negative. It's just a negative piece of bread. This is the N-type silicon. Then you would have the delicious center of your sandwich, which in my case would probably be peanut butter and jelly because I'm, you know, a man of sophistication. Uh, that would be P-type. So that's very positive, positive silicon. Then the bottom layer bread, once again, from that same negative loaf that you received earlier. It's the other end type. And it used thin film resistors. This is important because previous versions of integrated circuits actually used little tiny metal connectors to connect the various layers. Right, right. Those were the the film of this was thin enough that it would let the electrons just pass through it directly rather than needing those. They have those connectors. Exactly. It made it simpler to, to produce these types of transistors. And again, according to Moore's law, we would find these developments making it more efficient, cheaper to produce. That's what allowed us to create more complex electronics using these components and to make the components themselves more complex. So 65, that's when Fairchild produces the operational amplifier or op amp. So uh, that's uh, essentially uh, what it sounds like. An amplifier amplifies something. It makes something bigger. In this case, it's voltage. 
So what it would do is take the incoming voltage and amplify the potential difference from the input terminals significantly. Remembering that voltage is a measurement of the difference in electric potential. Right. 1965 was also the year in which Moore actually published that that article um, eloquently titled Cramming More Components Onto Integrated Circuits, in which uh, uh, Moore's observation or law was laid out. Yep, yep. And boy, Moore's law. That's one of those things that even today you have people saying, any day now is going to be the last day for Moore's law. And the engineers say, I will take you up on that challenge. (laughs) And so, uh, yeah, 66. Yeah. Let's, Let's move on. Let's keep going. Because, you know, Fairchild kept going, so we will too. 66, they created the first standard transistor-transistor logic, or TTL product, which was a quad two-input uh, negated AND gate, or NAND, N-A-N-D. So that's a logic gate that creates a false output only if all inputs are true. So in binary terms, if you put if you put in two ones, you get a zero, any other input combination results in a one. So if you get two zeros, it comes out as a one. One, one, and one zero comes out as a one. One, zero, one, one, it comes out as one. I know this gets confusing, but you have to, you, you do essentially think like with two switches, you have four potential combinations, even though you would mostly think, well, one's off and one's on. Yeah, but it's important to designate that off, on, and on, off are different in the sense of binary. Me getting on my binary soapbox, which only has two sides. It's not really a box, I guess. All right, so 1967, Fairchild introduces the new op amp with temperature compensation and metal oxide silicon capacitor, or MOS, M-O-S, metal oxide silicon. We're getting into a lot of uh, initialisms and some acronyms. Thank you. Thank you, Twitter listener um, name I don't have right now. In front of us, yes, who who corrected us. Yeah, I do that all the time, Jonathan's being snarky, but I actually really appreciate it. No, I really do, too. I I am that guy. I'm the guy who makes those corrections. So I cannot cannot criticize others for doing the same to me because I do that to other people. But yes, in 68, uh, Gordon Moore and Robert Noyce left the company. They leave Fairchild. Now, see... The Fairchild camera and instruments, they were kind of – while Fairchild Semiconductor was part of this company, the people over at Fairchild Camera and Instruments were sometimes a little handsy when it came to uh, the management style. Like they would they would sit there and override certain things that the engineers thought were really important. And so they, the, the founders, sometimes referred to as Fairchildren – became less enchanted with the company they had helped create. And one by one, or sometimes sometimes more than one by one, they left to go and either work for someone else or to found their own companies. Right. In this case, Moore and Noyce left to found uh, something called Intel. Yeah. Yeah. Might have heard of it. Little company called Intel. Uh, yeah. So they, which is, you know, you sit there and you think about, this is a pretty interesting progression. First, they worked for Shockley, the one of the inventors of the transistor. Then they went on to found Fairchild Semiconductor, and now they, they're leaving again to found Intel. We'll talk about some of the other companies that were founded by Fairchildren as well. That'll come into play in, later on. Uh, meanwhile, Fairchild Semiconductor hired away a guy named C. Lester Hogan, who was formerly of Motorola's semiconductor business, to become the head of Fairchild Semiconductor. And Hogan did something that made him extremely unpopular at Motorola and very popular uh, 
uh, at Fairchild Camera, but not so not necessarily so much at Fairchild Semiconductor. He decided to cannibalize his old division at Motorola, and he brought on uh, lots and lots of managers. Some would say around a hundred managers from Motorola, but he also brought along seven executives to become the new management of Fairchild Semiconductor. They essentially wiped out the existing management of Fairchild and replaced them. Right, right. Now those um those seven executives from Motorola had a their own nickname. You had the Traitorous Eight who made up the original Fairchild Semiconductor Group. The seven executives were called Hogan's Heroes. Hogan's Heroes, that's right. I did read about that. And they went that's on great. to star in a great television series. I don't think that's true. No? No. Uh, oh. But Motorola did sue Fairchild for damages due, due to all of this. Yeah. Um, I, I think the final outcome of that case was that the court said, like, well, it didn't help them that much if if they had any wrongdoing. Yeah, this is that was like the biggest backhanded win of all time. Right. Or It's very similar to something that happened in the Apple Samsung patent disputes. A judge ended up looking at this case that Motorola brought against Fairchild, saying that Fairchild had had essentially uh, uh, completely butchered Motorola's semiconductor business. They they kind of doomed it by taking all the talent. And furthermore, uh, had had like stolen some trade secrets by by lieu of of exactly these human people. Yeah, who the people had... who who were developing the products of Motorola had in their heads right. the information that was important to Motorola's success, and these were trade secrets, and therefore Fairchild had stolen trade secrets in this process. And initially. There was a 10% drop in stock price at Motorola and a 19% increase at Fairchild. But this lawsuit took years to play out, right? And by the end of it, the judge said, you know, uh, I'm looking at Fairchild's numbers and this has not done them any good at all. So I can't see how you can say that this is, uh, this, that Fairchild was doing this in order to get advantage. Cause if they, that's what their intent was, it sure hasn't played out that way. And Fairchild was like, thank you. Yeah. Ow. Yeah, this is a that was a huge slap in the face for both companies at the same time. Justice. 1969 Fairchild builds a semiconductor plant on Navajo Reservation territory in Shiprock, New Mexico, which this is gonna, will become important later. Yeah, it's a tough story. So 1973 Fairchild tries out a new technique creating integrated circuit transistors. It's called isoplanar 2. And that actually lets them reduce the size of transistors by about 70% while keeping the power consumption at the same, more or less the same level. That's also the year when we actually got that judgment against uh, Motorola. Um, 1974 was when Hogan was dismissed as president of Fairchild. He remained the vice chairman at the time. And the company starts to have rounds of layoffs. They... This was a point where they started talking about Fairchild Semiconductor having a, a real problem with management and mismanagement of the company. And some of that was due to the executives. Some of it was due to the board of directors or or Fairchild Camera, to be perfectly blunt. So Hogan, who had been this this sort of golden child and, you know, the center of this huge debate for several years, is now on the outs. He's no longer president. 1975 was when a really uh, controversial thing happened. Back at that uh, that plant that was on Navajo Reservation territory, mm-hmm. um, there was a there was an armed protest there. Yeah, twenty Navajo protesters, armed Navajo protesters from the American Indian Movement, 
took the plant by force, demanding better working conditions, and they also had demands that didn't have anything to do with Fairchild Semiconductor. It was more like... It wasn't li- about the plant. It was just a, a general plea to to re- really the United States. Right, yeah. It was to bring attention to uh, the state of affairs that Native Americans were living under at in, in reservations across the United States and saying, we want attention brought, we want better living conditions. So really they were using the, the plant as sort of their platform right. to get this attention. They held it for eight days uh, under armed force and eventually gave themselves up peacefully uh, Fairchild's response once this was over was to shut down that plant entirely, and they just left. It's now an abandoned building, or at least it was the last I saw from the last report I read, which I think was written in 2008 or 2009. So it could be something different now. But uh, the story is pretty grim because while I think everyone at Fairchild had – Maybe not the most honorable of intentions, but you know, they wanted to, they wanted to build this, this facility here partially because they could get really cheap labor, but it would mean that they could help this community. They, it seemed to me like they had that interest at heart, that they really did want to, to take it, not just take advantage of people, but to help a community. Sure. Although it was a very important protest to, to yes. go on. I mean, yeah. I mean, this, this was, you could argue about whether or not it was done in the best way, but it was certainly, this was a, an era as, as in the part, United States As part history. of that human rights movement, oh, yeah. that was that was transitioning from the 1960s on. Yeah, it was it was critical for, yes. for all of that. Although, right, yeah, yeah you the, know, you can you can argue about whether or not it was the right way but, to go, but yeah, but it at was a certain a, point when people are desperate. Yeah, 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 you there there was a point where they were feeling like there was no one listening, and mm-hmm. this was a way to make the world listen. So that kind of wraps up our first episode. This 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 pivotal moment when Fairchild uh has this this very public, very violent or potentially violent moment. And they're they're really in a moment uh, the company itself is in in this sort of chaotic transition where they they've undergone changes in in their executive uh, uh leadership. We'll talk more about what happened in the years since 1975 in our next episode. Guys, if you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's a company, it's a specific kind of technology, maybe it's just a trend in technology, let us know. Send us an email. Our address is techstuff at discovery.com or drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter. You'll find our handle is techstuffhsw. And Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 